0: If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 10. And if you don't have your Bibles, that's fine. I believe it will be displayed on the wall and it's also in your bulletin. But let me begin with some, some comments and repeat myself. Everything is broken. Everything in this world is broken. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And so for the summer of 2023, for our sermons this summer, while many of you are traveling and in and out, um, that's just the nature of our summer, we have been looking at that subject of life in a broken world where everything is broken, but the robust promise that God has made in His Word that He is redeeming broken things. And he does that in his church, he does it through his church, and strangely, we have this optimistic view that God is at work in us, he's at work in you, he's at work through us, and if you know Pastor Paul at all, he's not much of an optimist. I tend to be a bit of a cynical person, but I have a robust view of redemption Because it's what the Scriptures offer us. So we've seen, uh, if you've been with us, that, that our worship is broken, but it can be redeemed. It can be made right. We can stop worshiping the wrong things, and we can turn our attention heavenward, as God calls us heavenward in Christ Jesus. Our work ethics, our work motivations, they're all broken, but they can be redeemed. Our rest, our ability to rest, our rest ethic is broken and perverted, but that can be redeemed. God has the power to show us how to enjoy His good gifts. And then we saw, we've seen that relationships in this life are broken, and that's no surprise to any of us. Marriages are broken, families are broken, friendships are broken, communities are broken. But we believe in the power of the gospel and that He is redeeming broken things. And so we have great hope. And we take very seriously His promise and His commitment to do a work of redemption in His people. And so we eagerly and with great optimism look to see what His Word says and how it calls us to be busy about fixing broken things about redeeming the ruins that are our lives, and about seeking to make things better, to seek to make things as they ought to be. And that is the story of sanctification in the Bible. That those, God ju- those who God justifies, He also sanctifies. And so with that sense of optimism, and our belief that God is at work, this morning we look to Luke chapter 10, and our subject is... Redeeming Broken Relationships, Part 3, Our Neighbors and Our Neighborhoods. The place where God has put us, that God can have a redeeming influence through us upon our neighbors and our neighborhoods. So give your attention to a familiar reading from Luke chapter 10. The parable of the Good Samaritan. And as we read it, I want you to listen for two things. There are two things that we'll highlight this morning. The first is, Who is my neighbor? And the second is, What kind of neighbor, what kind of person is God calling and even empowering you to be? So listen for those two things as we read a familiar story, one of the most familiar stories in the entire world. On one occasion, an expert in the law, a scribe, stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? And the man answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But the man wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, And so too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Let's pray that the Lord would bless our understanding of his holy word. Lord, would you teach us this morning a truth that can transform us. Would you show us Jesus, the one true great neighbor, and make us to be more like him? Learning to love others, even those not like us, especially when we would rather not. Do this, Lord, we ask and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So much to say this morning about neighbors and israelites and samaritans and i begin with robert frost the poet robert frost who said this good fences make good neighbors you've heard that before good fences make good neighbors some of us like to be left alone some of us like our space some of us like our time and our schedules and, and we're very controlling of those things. And those things rival, often, being a good neighbor. During COVID, during that COVID season, some of us experienced the rule of having six feet of distance. And some of us found that that wasn't quite enough. We might have preferred 10 or 12 feet of distance. So this morning, as we talk about neighbors it should bring to your attention and to mine a lot of shortcoming and a lot of fault. But there's a lot of good news in all of this that we're going to consider. But the Lord does take very seriously the call of His people to be good neighbors and to see the redemption of the kind of neighbors we are. Even if we like 10 feet of distance between others, even if we're control freaks with our schedule and we don't want to be interrupted by other people, there's a work of redemption to be done in all of us. So three points this morning, uh, similar to this whole series where we look at creation, fall, and redemption. And the first is the obvious. We were created for caring, relational, enjoyable, harmonious community... With people. That's what we were created for, in the image of God. That should be the way things are. But, point number two sin has corrupted all of us and now threatens the peace and harmony of all human relationships. Every human relationship is now threatened by sin. And it's perverted and things go wrong. Things are not the way they're supposed to be in any human relationship. You'll remember in Genesis chapter 11, the Lord came down and confused the language of His created people. And from that time on, we've had people spread throughout the earth, people of different language, the scripture says, and consequently of that, people of different cultures people with different ways of life. And you know, it doesn't take much to have a difference with someone, a change of culture, a change of language, and we will conflict because they don't do things like we do things around here. And so there began the tension with neighbors and neighborhoods, you could say, between tribes and people. So during covid when we were all forced to be indoors and people were home from work, a lot of bad things happened in communities. A lot of bad things happened for individuals. A lot of bad habits were exercised. And a lot of communities became strained in different ways. Well, near where I live, in a little community called Due West, that some of you are familiar with, and some of of you saw this, it has since been taken down but one neighbor in due west on the anderson highway put up a big sign in his yard and it said and i'm not making this up world's worst neighbor lives here and it had a big red arrow that pointed to the house across the street now i don't know who these people are but i drive by there all the time And I'm not making that up. It is a real sign. It was up for a few weeks. Now that neighbor across the street, you can't see their house. There's fencing. There's tall wooden fencing everywhere and signs all over that wooden fencing that say things like keep out, stay away, firearms present. There's something going on behind the wood wall and I don't know what it is. But I know that this guy seems to hate this guy because of all the noise and the racket that that goes on. COVID wasn't the cause of that, but because everybody was forced home, surely it exacerbated the situation. Conflict of neighbors is the result of sin. And we all can have conflict with neighbors. My house, for those of you who have been there, Got a great big old wood wall fence that runs up the driveway. And it's hideous. It's ugly. I'd replace it with something prettier if I could. But I did, um, that fence is there not because of a conflict we had with a neighbor, but the person who lived in the house before us who had a conflict with the neighbor. And it was related to a dog coming over, and I don't remember the details. But I am happy to say, that I have had a conversation this summer with the new resident in that house, and we have plans to tear that wall down. That's the way it should be. Neighbors coming together, fences coming down, but sin and the ruin of human relationships just makes us prone to want to put fences up. We want to keep our distance. We don't want to be inconvenienced. You do your thing. And We do ours is the mentality that many of us have. Conflict is always available. It's always quick to come. When my dad was in his 80s, we lived in a small community, White Oak, South Carolina, a small little church. I just told you we didn't have air conditioning. We had to use fans, a little small country ARP church. And in his 80s, he drove over to see a nearby neighbor, and sweet dad in his pickup truck pulled up to visit the neighbor the younger couple in their forties and hit their dog by accident and he went in and and he explained himself and this these were kinfolk and they left our church over it they wouldn't be reconciled and there was apologies and it's an eighty-year-old man driving a truck and People are difficult. We will be alienated, we will separate, fences will go up. Listen, this is all because of the fall. It's all because of sin and it's who we are. But as Christians, we should make it harder upon ourselves to alienate so quickly from people. We should be the ones that say, okay, I know what's at work here. This is Genesis 3. This is sin. This is ruin. But God is at work. He can redeem broken relationships. And we will commit ourselves to trying to keep the tribes together rather than fissures and fractures breaking people apart. Amen? Well, that takes us to our... Well, actually, I have a quote. Pathak and Runyon, in their book, The Art of Neighboring, which I will comment more on in a few minutes, they said this, The majority of Christians don't even know the names of most of their neighbors. We know this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not what Jesus envisioned for the church in our world. And we cannot just sit around waiting for someone else to do it for us. That is to be a good neighbor. The art of neighboring... We're going to talk more about that in a minute. But that is the condition in which we live. Do you know your neighbors? Do you know their names? Or are they just, they do their thing, we do ours? Listen, that is is how I operate. This is not a sermon that's seeking to bring shame to you. It's also not trying to give the moral of, well, let's just go be better citizens. There's a point to this parable that we're going to see, and it's all about redemption. Redemption. But we have to see how messy things are before we can long for and look for God's work of redemption. And that's our third point. All this is true about sin and ruin. But God is redeeming a people to Himself. That is His church. And He is making them to be more like Himself. Redeeming all things, even our relationships as neighbors... For the glory of God. And this brings us to our text that we've read. And who are our neighbors? And what kind of neighbor is God calling us to be? And so in our passage, the scribe comes to Jesus and he asks, And who is my neighbor? After he had recited the great commandment You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. That's the great commandment that he had quoted. And so he seeks to justify himself, the passage says. And so he says, so who is my neighbor, Jesus? And Jesus answers that question, not with a direct answer, but with a parable, with a story, with the parable of the good Samaritan. And he begins with three characters. And the first is the scribe. The scribe, or we might say a lawyer, who was an expert in the law. And he asks a question, apparently trying to trap Jesus. And Jesus the rabbi would not be trapped. He would answer his question with a parable and then later with a question. And the the scribe would not come to the conclusion that he had hoped to. Jesus knows the words of the law, and that he must do them in order to live. But this scribe is intent on proving himself. And so Jesus begins the parable with a man in a ditch. In verses 29 to 30, a man who is stripped of his clothes, he's half dead, unconscious, and because he's stripped of his clothes, there is no clear identity marking about his race or about his class. And that's an important feature to the parable. This man has been robbed by bandits. He's been on what is a 17-mile road from Jerusalem down to Jericho. It was not uncommon for, for robbers and thieves to do this very kind of thing that Jesus has described. And the man is found beaten half to death. He's unconscious. He's in a terrible condition. And along comes, Jesus says, the priest. The upper echelon of an Israelite. The one who was responsible for religious, sacrificial, ceremonial duties in worship. And he's coming from Jerusalem. Perhaps he has just tended to those kinds of duties. And the passage says he came within eyesight. He sees the condition of the man in the ditch. And he passes by. He's got somewhere to be. He's got something to do. Fill in the blank. Whatever it is, he has no mercy. He has no compassion. But he's a priest. And one would think he would be a man of mercy and compassion. But Jesus says no, he's a passerby. Maybe he's too busy to get involved. Maybe he doesn't want to go near what could be a dead body and defile himself and his functioning in the priesthood. The text doesn't answer any of that, but all of that is possible to a real-life scenario and how a priest might think. But Jesus says he's guilty of passing by. And then there's a second person in the story that Jesus introduces. This, too, is a religious man. He is a Levite. He's the lower echelon but he's responsible to assist in duties of worship. He too came near to the situation. He saw the man in the ditch, but he too passed by on the other side of the road. Perhaps he too was busy. Perhaps he couldn't wait to get home and see his family. Maybe he needed to cut his grass. There was no opportunity in his mind to be slowed down and inconvenienced by this tragedy In the ditch, two religious men, responsible for for worship, but they did not show compassion. They did not did not have a heart to show mercy. Side note here: I think this is important. When Jesus does this, and he makes two religious men who are responsible for worship heartless and not showers of mercy. It should bring to our minds, probably, that it is typically true that those who are meticulous about worship and detail can very easily be heartless people when it comes to people. And that should not be. That should not ever be true, but it does tend to be true. Those who are meticulous about the details of worship sometimes do not have heart or compassion for people. But the gospel we learn of in in Scripture shows us that it unites the head, the heart, and the hand of the one it converts. It makes us meticulous thinkers, but it gives us compassionate hearts and willingness to serve others. So the head, the heart, and the hand should always be changed by the beauty and the truth of the gospel. And then we come to a third character now. And the listener to the story would have assumed maybe it's going to be an Israelite, a typical layman in the community. But that is not what Jesus does. Jesus introduces the Samaritan. And what we have to understand is that Samaritans were despised by Jews. They were seen as heretics and half-breeds. We learn of them in the Old Testament in 2 Kings 17. If you want to know the origin of the Samaritans, you can look there. But historically, there were even Jewish prayers. Prayers by the Jewish people that asked God to not show mercy to Samaritans. That's how despised they were. That's the kind of neighbors that they were. It was tense, it was ugly, it was vicious. But Jesus makes this man the hero, so to speak, in the story. He is the one who showed mercy. When he saw the man in the ditch, unlike the priest and the Levite, he draws near, he goes to the situation. He gives his time, he lets his schedule be interrupted. He's sacrificial in that way. And he even gave his money. He gave denarii. A denarii was was a day's wage. A denarius was a a day's wage. Two denarii, two days wages. And that would have lasted to keep someone in an inn for some length of time. He gave it. He willingly gave it. He's generous. He's sacrificial. He's generous. And then Jesus pronounces that this man has the title of being a true neighbor. Because he showed mercy. Actually, Jesus asks that man, the scribe, in verse 36, So which of the three I just told you the story of, which of the three is a good neighbor? And you can pick up on some of that tension between the Jews and the Samaritans in his answer. Commentaries think that that's true. In verse 36, it says, The one who showed mercy. He wouldn't even say the word the Samaritan. He avoids saying it and just called him "well, the one who showed mercy. He likely was not at all happy with the conclusion of Jesus' parable. But as a scribe, you do wonder, could a passage like Hosea 6.6 have come to the scribe's mind? Do you remember what Hosea 6.6 says? The Lord desires Mercy, not ceremony, not sacrifice. He desires mercy. Not unlike what we heard in Micah the prophet in our call to worship. He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. But those dots may not have connected for the scribe, but it is everything that Jesus is teaching and communicating. And then Jesus concludes this passage in this parable with a command. And he says, go and do likewise. Go and be like the Samaritan. Now, if we mishear that, you and I could conclude, okay, we just need to go be better people. We need to try harder as neighbors. That is not actually what Jesus is doing. Jesus is exposing his heart that he does not love his fellow man. It's not in him to do or to be what God would ultimately require. And yet Jesus tells him, go. Go find out that you can't be this way. Go find out that you fall short of the glory of God. And yet Jesus commands his people to be good neighbors and to do justly to show mercy, and to live humbly. In Matthew chapter 5, that Sermon on the Mount, you remember that Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. And so as the church, we hear all these words. They swirl and they may seem to be in conflict, but they're telling the same story. You need to be a good neighbor in the image of God, but you're not going to be the perfect neighbor that God is calling you to be. And so we live in that tension, but we are called to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world, even as neighbors. Rosaria Butterfield, in her excellent little book, the gospel comes with a house key, practicing radically ordinary hospitality in a post-Christian world. She says this, see if this maybe ties it all together. She says, our unbelieving neighbors need to hear and see and taste and feel authentic Christianity. Hospitality spreading from every Christian home that includes neighbors in prayer, food, friendship, child care, dog walking, and all the daily matters upon which friendships are built. Through ordinary hospitality, we can build focus, deepen, and strengthen the family of God, pointing others to the Bible-believing local church and benefit earthly and spiritual good to everyone we know. That's what's at stake for being a good neighbor for practicing hospitality, for making the effort to get to know the people that God has placed around you. It really matters. It really is important. God really does work that way. Now, in that book, The Art of Neighboring, that I referenced earlier, and I think we might have a picture of it. I'm not sure if it made it in. Yeah, there it is. Um, highly recommend this book for a couple of things. So this week in reading portions of it, it's a simple little practice. And and I'm going to pitch it to you as as a possible strategy or an application for the redeeming of your neighborhood. But these pastors in Denver simply came up with a strategy to encourage their church to sit down and draw a chart. It looks like a a tic-tac-toe graph or whatever you would call that. And put your house, your own house, in the middle of the graph. And then try to think of the neighbors and their houses that live around you. Or maybe they're all in a straight line. They don't have to be actually around you. Within your reach. And they ask three questions. Do you know the name of the people who live there? Do you know their last name? So you can think of this as as you're asked this. Do you know your neighbors? What is their last name? Number two, do you know their first names? Maybe where they work and what they do. If you don't know number one, go to work on getting to know number one. If you know number one, go to work on number two. Find out more. And then number three, do you know anything about their life story? Where they came from, their larger family, what they're living through? They just very humbly said, just go get to know people. See if you can intentionally be a better neighbor by crossing the road and extending friendship and getting to know your people. So if we did this graph, I don't know how well we would do as a family. We'd do okay, but not great. I don't know how you would do. But what if we thought intentionally about redeeming the relationships with our neighbors through our neighborhoods For the glory of God. Even those homes that maybe you wouldn't have knocked on their door otherwise. Some of you grew up, like me, um, learning of stranger danger. Stay away from... Don't talk to people you don't know. Somehow that was so cemented in me. It's my instinct now, so I can blame it on that, right? I don't have to be a neighbor because they're strangers. No, we're adults. We're the church. And there are needs all around us. And God is calling us to know those needs, to address those needs. The great shame is to see those needs and pass by uncaring, not showing mercy as God has shown mercy to us. Tim Keller on this subject was so strong. He says this, We instinctively tend to limit for whom we exert ourselves. We'll do it for people like us and for people whom we like, but Jesus will have none of that. By depicting a Samaritan helping a Jew, Jesus could not have found a more forceful way to say that anyone at all in need, regardless of race, politics, class, or religion, is your neighbor not everyone is your brother or sister in faith but everyone is your neighbor and you must love your neighbor he's exactly right and again the pr- the purpose of the parable and of the sermon is not to shame us but it's to bring to our attention god really is calling us to be a certain kind of people in the earth and if we have a robust view of redemption as we must then everything is target, everything is gain for Him to claim. He has ownership of it all and power to redeem it. And so even our friendships, our being good neighbors, our caring about our neighborhoods, even that is affected by the gospel. I heard last night on the news a shocking statistic for me, and it was that almost 30% of Americans live alone. Did you know that? Almost 30% of Americans live alone. Well, we could start there with our neighbors, our neighbors who live alone, who surely are lonely and who need friends. A second easy way for us to learn to care for our neighbors ministries that this church supports, easy opportunities for us to engage our neighborhoods and our neighbors as a church. Did you know there's a GPC Deacons Fund? that exists for us as a church to be able to help financial crises, not just of our own church members, but those outside of our church. And someday maybe we'll tell stories, older stories, newer stories, of ways those resources have been used to love our neighbors. I've actually heard in the past year that the funding for the Deacons Fund has probably lost attention since covid Maybe this is a way that you and your family could say, we want to help juice up that deacon's fund and love our neighbors in new and profound ways. If that's not of interest, there are other things you could do to support in loving neighbors around us and neighborhoods. Some of the ministries that we support as a church, Pathway House, Crossroads Pregnancy Center, Greenwood Greater United Ministries, All of these targeting our neighbors and our neighborhoods and real needs within them. And you may not know those people, but we have people who do know those people. And we can support them financially. We can provide meals to assist them in their ministries. A robust view of redemption that takes neighboring and neighborhoods seriously in light of the gospel would have us start to think more and more like this as a church. To not pass people by. To not be uncaring because they're not like us. They don't believe exactly what we believe or value what we value. But instead, to see the need and to embrace it and to do what little we can by faith to address it. So in conclusion, that parable, what's it all about? Let me remind you that there was the hearer of it who was trying to prove himself. He was trying to justify himself. And Jesus tells him that story not just to motivate him, but actually to crush him, to show him that his heart was sinful. He did not have godly neighboring in him, he needed faith in God that would transform him. And so the same is true for you and me. You you will find as you go try to be the neighbor God is calling you to be, it's just not in you to be a perfect neighbor. You might be a little better neighbor, but you're going to see your sin, your selfishness. You love your schedule. You don't want to be inconvenienced. And you don't like to share and give the way that you should. The point of the parable is to point us to what I'm going to call, not the good Samaritan, But the great Samaritan. And we'll close with this. When you read that parable, reread it today and see that we are the bad neighbors who do not truly embody the law of love. We are the ones who pass people by. And yet, also, we too are the ones in the ditch. We're naked of good works, filthy in our sin. Spiritually as good as dead, as Ephesians 2 would say. But in that parable also, we see Jesus. That He's the one true good neighbor who perfectly embodies the law of love. Who comes near to those who are in distress and does not pass us by. He is the great Samaritan. He was despised and rejected of men also. But He was the bringer of peace, of healing balm and oil, even offering bread and wine, and promising to pay our debt in full, even returning again to do that. It's the story of the gospel in a beautiful parable. And this morning it leads us to the table. It leads us to remember who we are as sinners, but who Jesus is as the ultimate neighbor who came to us in our distress, who rescued us, and now calls us to show mercy and compassion in the same way that has been shown to us. Let's pray, then we'll sing, and we'll come to the table. Lord, we thank You for the great mercy we have in Christ How he has loved sinners who were dead and ruined and lost and brought life and hope and peace. What wondrous love you have offered us in him. May we sing of it. May we believe it. May we be changed by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.